Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Dell Rooks is a school crossing guard in Florida. He tried everything to get cars to slow down through the school zone, but nothing worked until he took a blow dryer, wrapped it in electrical tape, making it look like a radar gun. Now Dell just points the thing at cars, and it's incredibly how quickly they hit the brakes. It's almost comical, Dale says. It's amazing how well it works. If you think about it, the people in those cars don't really care about the law. They just want to avoid judgment. Sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what the vast majority of the human race has been doing since the Garden of Eden? Today we're going to learn that one of the main ministries of God's Holy Spirit is to comfort and help believers and also to convict the world of sin. The intended impact of Jesus' words this morning is difficult to overestimate because they are almost his final revelation before the cross. Only his high priestly prayer and the agony of the cross are left. Look at verse 5 with me. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus first addresses a question that none of them are asking, but all of them are thinking, and it is, Jesus, where are you going? Now, we know at this point they are both frightened and confused. Can we just for a minute be objective and imagine what the mission was that Jesus had just given these men? For example, These Jewish fishermen had to go to their fellow citizens and say, guess what? Yahweh, the uncreated creator, the transcendent king of the universe, the most high God, has become a penniless preacher who got crucified. Not only that, even the best of you are unclean unless you believe in him. Or imagine this, they also had to go to the Greeks and the Romans too. Now, the Greeks and the Romans believe, like Aristotle and Plato taught, that truth and beauty and justice were just cosmic ideals that dwelt in an immaterial realm. Yet these Christian missionaries have to go to the Greeks and go to the Romans and also say, guess what? Truth has become a historical event. Not only that, but it has actually became a person. And by the way, philosophers... Unless you believe in him, you are also lost. How well is that going to go over? Probably about as well as a pregnant pole vaulter. But here's what we can't miss. You're a little slow this morning. The Lord's statement, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, provides the supreme evidence of his righteousness and his acceptance into the Father's presence. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Yet, we also read in Philippians 2.9 that the Father has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And so God himself, by doing that, has testified to Christ's righteousness. Also notice that Jesus says that none of his disciples even asked where he was going. 
All they could think about was how they were going to make it in the world without him in their immediate presence. So here is Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. And even now, instead of comforting him, his disciples still remain wrapped up in themselves. He must have felt like a man before eating his last meal before the electric chair, pouring out his heart to his best friend, who hasn't really been listening, and his friend looks at his last meal and just says, Are you going to finish that? Verse 7, please. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus now tells them that the Holy Spirit would be alongside and in the disciples, encouraging and exhorting them and bringing them all to an elevated spiritual life. But unlike Jesus, he would not be limited by a physical body, but would always be everywhere and always available. Now that is a great advantage, especially since apart from the Holy Spirit, Human beings do not understand spiritual realities. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring to the world's consciousness three different things here. It's a correct perception of sin, a correct perception of righteousness, and a correct perception of judgment. Now, while often these predictions, promises, and commands, Jesus alluded to the coming of the Holy Spirit to teach believers all that they would need to know. But these passing references could only have been mystifying to them. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was reserved for kings and prophets, and occasionally for regular people when the Lord wanted to accomplish something extraordinary. And so the idea that the Spirit of God could indwell each believer must have been unthinkable to them. It was an unbelievable extravagance of which no one was worthy. The disciples' heads must have been spinning. But I first want you to notice all the personal pronouns that Jesus uses in talking about the Holy Spirit in verses 7 through 14. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. You know what that teaches us? The Holy Spirit is not an it, it is a he. And that is important. Because if I view the Holy Spirit as a thing or an essence or a power, then my focus related to the Holy Spirit will be how much of the Holy Spirit do I have. But when I understand him to be a person, to be the third person of the Godhead, to be God Almighty, then my focus changes to how much of me does the Holy Spirit have. Now, some have said that many of us think about the Holy Spirit kind of like our pituitary gland. You know it's there. 
you're glad you've got it. You don't want to lose it, but you're not exactly sure what it does. And sadly, in many Christian circles, the Holy Spirit is either neglected, forgotten, or misunderstood, which is strange, as the one given to unite the body of Christ is often the very center of all the controversy. This is a concept that we must firmly grasp. Because so often as Christian work is so rigidly programmed that it seems that we no longer really need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. The late Dr. A.W. Tozer said that if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. But if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the early church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Is it possible to only have him in degrees? Like, today I'm only about 37% filled, so you would do good not to get on my last nerve. Now, that's a faulty understanding. We all have 100% of the Spirit when we are saved. Think more of him as feeling us the way that the wind feels a sail on a sailboat as it pushes it towards a destination. But let me first ask, when you're sailing, is being filled with the wind an experience or is it a practice? Well, it's both really. Catching the wind on a sailboat is clearly an experience as you are first carried away by a mighty power from elsewhere, but it is also a practice. What do I mean? If you don't put the sails up, you're not going to go anywhere. Even if the wind is blowing powerfully, you're just going to sit there. So sailing in that sense is the art of responding to an external power. You rely entirely on the external power to get you anywhere. Sailors never imagine themselves to be powering that boat by their own strength. But you also have to respond attentively whatever the wind is doing, and that comes through cultivating awareness, skill, and good habits. Being filled with the Spirit involves the same both-and sort of relationship. As we pursue the experience of the Holy Spirit, Paul uses the language of filling and drenching and drinking and pouring. We must rely solely on the Spirit's immeasurable power rather than our own strength to get us anywhere. And we desperately need him for that. Someone rightly quipped, unless there is within us that which is above us, we shall soon yield to that which is around us. Like how Corey Ten Boom described this. She once said, I have a glove here in my hand. The glove cannot do anything by itself, but when my hand is in it, it can do many things. True, it is not the glove but my hand in the glove that acts, and like that, we are gloves. It is the Holy Spirit who is, a, who is the hand who does the job. We just have to make room for the hand that every finger is filled. Go verse 8 with me. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. 
No one today wants to believe in any kind of judgment. We want to think that we can do whatever we want with impunity and that no day of reckoning is ever going to come. Sometimes we are even encouraged in this by the thought that God does not seem to judge immediately and that evil often seems to go unpunished. But this also is false thinking. It is true that God does not visit his judgments upon the sinner immediately and that evil does seem often to go completely unpunished, but that is only because God is long-suffering in his judgments. You see, the world has a relative view of righteousness, kind of like the ascending degrees on a thermometer. For example, a convict's deeds are held to be largely unrighteous, although he may have a little good in him, say 20%. Better man may have a little more righteousness, say 50%. Still better men than that may have even more righteousness, say 80%, while God has the most righteousness of all at 100%. Now, the logical outcome of this unfortunate assumption is that there is a degree of righteousness that will be acceptable to God. And if man can attain that, man can attain heaven. But the Holy Spirit convinces us that our own righteousness does not even remotely come close to the righteousness of Christ. And once we are convicted of that, we begin to abandon that kind of thinking. We abandon all hope of, think, of thinking through salvation through our 20% or 50% or 80% of our deeds of righteousness. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we should pray with the Apostle Paul when he said that we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, most people today think that God grades on the curve, but that just isn't true. God doesn't grade on the curve. God grades on the cross. Also notice here, it's not sins plural, but sins singular that are being judged. But sins singular. Why would I bring that out? You see, sins are just the symptoms, while sin is the underlying problem. Let me ask you this morning, what is the greatest sin? Is it adultery, homosexuality, murder, or something even worse than that? No. The greatest sin is unbelief in not receiving God's Son, Jesus Christ. After all, it is unbelief that condemns the lost sinner, not the committing of individual sins. For instance, a person could completely clean up their life, put all of his or her bad habits, and still be lost and go to hell. And I ask you, what comfort would they derive from being the nicest and most moral person in hell? When God said to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The Hebrew word there connotes an animal that is coiled low, ready to spring, attack, and kill. Notice that God does not say, Hey, Cain, that sin is really going to get you into a lot of trouble. No. God is saying that if he sins his own sin, will eventually consume him. Sin is a suicidal action of the human soul 
against itself. It's a dark reality that will eventually control you. Sin creates bad habits and distorted affections. And so when we sin, we are surrendering to something that wants to kill us. But we can be so blind to the sin that is in us. Joe Bailey, the late Eternity Magazine columnist, visited some German soldiers who had been devoted soldiers in the German army during World War II. Two of them had been put up for promotion to become second lieutenants in the Nazi army. The commandant told them that he would approve their promotion on just one condition, that they would join the officers club. Now the problem in their minds was that being a member of the officer club would require them to attend some weekend dances. Now these young men believed that dancing was wrong because it could lead to immorality. And so because of their convictions, they turned down the promotion. But later in their military careers, these same men were assigned to the death camps where countless Jews were stuffed into ovens and killed. And even though they did not directly participate in that slaughter, they knew what was going on. And yet neither one of them voiced any kind of protest. And when Bailey talked to them many years later, they looked back on their experience then with absolutely no regret, convinced they had made the right moral decisions. For them, not conforming to social pressure and refusing to dance was an act of righteousness, while conforming to patriotic mass murder and remaining silent while Jews burned in ovens left them with no feelings of unrighteousness. What that teaches us is that when we set our own standard of external righteousness, any one of us in here are capable of all kinds of evil. Now that word convict there is an extremely interesting word. It means to cross-examine someone, to show them their error. It's the work of a prosecutor. To convict someone means to get them on the witness stand and then cross-examine them, asking them a lot of hard questions to punch holes in their story, to actually undo the fabric of a person's view of things. Has this happened to you yet? The teaching of this passage is you cannot be a Christian unless you have had that sensation of someone dealing with you, of a divine presence asking you questions, cross-examining you, and dealing with you in your innermost being. You see, Christianity is not just a peripheral thing. It's not just a lifestyle. It means that you are moved into the very center of your being. Someone's dealing with you down there, and you have a sensation that that is happening. That's what the text says. That's what the Bible says throughout. It's also very normal that the first way you know the Holy Spirit is working on you is you get upset. It's not a nice experience to be sitting in a witness chair being cross-examined by the opposition, is it? No, you sweat. You say, whoa, 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 I don't know. Did I say that? I don't remember saying that. And you feel like somebody has you by your throat. That's what a prosecutor does. And it may make you very upset about that. You may wish you could go back to the place where you didn't care about these sort of things anymore. You wish you could separate yourself from the problem of faith, but you can't. Because if you are a true Christian, 
That is now in you. What is in you? It is the Holy Spirit. And that is his mission to convict us. But try to get somebody to a doctor who doesn't think that she needs to go to a doctor. What do you have to do? You have to argue, don't you? You have to prosecute and try to convict her of her sickness. You have to say, look at the symptoms. Look at what it says in this book. Or I Googled this and it's not good. You're convincing her of her sickness. It's just natural. And here's why. Conviction of sin has to happen before you can ever find Jesus' salvation and what he did on the cross as anything but just a concept. Because your love for the helper is completely conditioned on our awareness of how much we truly need help. But here's the thing. Instead, at least initially, everybody tries to make themselves presentable. In the Bible, the word righteous means to be right with somebody or to be presentable. So how do you make yourself presentable? Everybody has a way of making themselves looking good in the mirror and say, I'm acceptable. I don't have to be ashamed. Now, in other words, everybody does that. Everybody goes about trying to make themselves righteous. Some of you say, I do it through my children. Some of you do it through your career. Some of you do it through your physique. Not many of us in here, but some of you. And I know how you feel. Now that I'm well into my 30s, I know what you're saying. I said I was well in. Some of you do it through ambition. Some of you do it through money. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that makes us feel presentable and acceptable to significant others and to yourself? The Holy Spirit's job is to come in and show you that everything you're doing of trying to make yourself presentable just isn't going to work. The Holy Spirit's job is of convicting you of sin is to show you what those strategies are and then to show us that those strategies do not work. When the Holy Spirit comes to a person like that and that person is convicted that the real sin that you've been trusting in is really just yourself or your own goodness. We need this. Occasionally somebody will come along and say, the trouble with Christianity is you tell people all about their terrible sin and they feel so unworthy they will never want to come to God. They don't get it then. The Holy Spirit comes to you and says, you are sinful, therefore you have to go to God. On the other hand, some people say, well, I'm unworthy to go to God. Now, if so, that is still basing your salvation on your performance. It's still on the basis of making yourself presentable and on the basis of self-trust. On the other hand, the person who has a superiority complex says, I'm better than most people. God should receive me. But then the Holy Spirit will come and say, you're also basing your salvation on good works. You're trying to be your own Savior. You're trying to crucify yourself. You're trusting in yourself just far too much. Therefore, do you see the difference between Christians and religious people? Christians repent of their sins, but so do religious people. We all know we lie. We all know we get angry. We all know that we do things wrong from time to time. But the difference between a Christian and a religious person is religious people repent of their sins, 
the Christians also repent of their righteousness. The Spirit also convicts of righteousness by pointing to the only righteous one. Because I go to my Father, you will see me no more, says Jesus. I'm okay, you say. I belong to the Rotary Club, or I volunteer for the American Cancer Society, so I'm pretty righteous. Really? Righteous enough that death cannot hold you? So righteous that when you die, you're going to rise again by your own power? Did Gandhi? Did Muhammad? Did Confucius? Did Buddha? Unlike any other figure in history, Jesus Christ alone rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. Thus, he is the only righteous one to whom the Spirit points to and of whom the Spirit convicts about. Well, doesn't the Spirit also convict us of sin once we become Christians? Yes, he does. But the Spirit's conviction does not drive us away from God. On the contrary, it draws us closer to God. It's the condemnation of Satan that makes us ashamed to talk to the Father. You can always tell the difference between the Spirit convicting you and Satan condemning you. Because if Satan is condemning you, you won't want to pray, you won't want to spend time in his word, and you certainly won't want to come to church. You'll just hang out in a hole and hide your head. But if the Spirit is convicting you, you'll hear, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you'll be drawn back to Jesus. It's also important to note that the Spirit comes to the church and not to the world. This means that he works in and through his church. The Holy Spirit does not minister in some type of vacuum. Jesus, just as Jesus, the Son of God, had to have a body in order to do his work on earth, so the Spirit of God needs a body to accomplish his ministries, and that body is his church. Our bodies are his tools and his temples, and he wants us to glorify Christ and to witness to a lost world. Now, as far as we know, Thomas Huxley never put his faith in Christ, but he did experience some degree of conviction. Toward the end of the 19th century, that famous agnostic was a guest at a house party in a country home. Sunday came around, and most of the guests prepared to go to church, and as expected, Huxley didn't want to go. But he did approach a man known to have a simple and radiant Christian faith and just said to him, Suppose you don't go to church today. Suppose you stay here and tell me quite simply what your Christian faith means to you and why you are a Christian. But, said the man, you could demolish any of my arguments in an instant. I'm not clever enough to argue with you. Huxley said gently, I don't want to argue with you. I just want you to tell me what simply what this Christ means to you. And so the man did, and when he had finished, there were tears in Huxley's eyes. With great sadness, he said, I would give my right hand to be able to believe that. You see, Huxley had seen something of the spiritual realities through the life of a humble, spirit-filled believer. That should encourage us. What a breathtaking idea that God would use us this morning to accomplish his work in this world. Perhaps this was in the back of Paul's mind when he wrote, You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. 
you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That means that to be used in this way is not so much a matter of what we say, but of what we are. As we finish up today, Bible scholar and pastor N.T. Wright retells the following story about a bishop who was hearing the confessions of sin from three hardened teenagers in the church. All the boys were trying to make a joke out of it, so they met with the bishop and confessed to a long list of ridiculous and grievous sins that they had not committed. It was all a joke. The bishop, seeing through their bad practical joke, played along with them, and the first two ran out of the church laughing. But then he listened carefully to the third prankster, and before he got away, he told the young man, okay, you have confessed these sins, now I want you to do something to show your repentance. I want you to walk to the far end of the church, I want you to look at the picture of Jesus hanging on that cross, and I want you to look at his face and say, you did all this for me, and I really don't care all that much. I want you to do that three times. So the boy went up to the front, looked at the picture of Jesus, said, you did all that for me, and I really don't care that much. Then he said it again, but he couldn't say it the third time because he broke down in tears. And then N.T. Wright said, the reason I know that story was because I was that young man. You see, there's just something about the cross Something about Jesus dying there for us which leaps over all the theoretical discussions, over all the possibilities of how we explain things this way or that, and it simply just grasps us. And we are grasped by it. Somehow we have, a sense, we have a sense that what we are grasping is really the love of God. Let us pray. Lord, it's been such a good day to be here with you through the music and singing your praises, through the fellowship of the saints through the teaching of your word. And Holy Spirit, you are central to all those things. So we just pray, Father, that we will not have more of you as much as you would have more of us. Help us to give our lives completely and solely to you. Show us areas in our life that we need to give up and other areas where we need to do things that we're not doing now. We are truly helpless without you. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you.